Good morning, Soldier Midtown. How are we doing today? Wow, that was a rainy response. I'll try one more time. How are we doing today? Good. Thank you so much. Hey, we're going to talk about Jesus today. So we got good news for you, okay? We're in a series called Galatians. My name is Justin Carl. I'm the pastor of Next Steps here. And this is our second sermon in, this, in the book of Galatians. And we're calling this series the Book of Freedom because one of the major themes of this book is the gospel frees us from our past, it frees us from the power of sin in the present, and it gives us a hope that one day we'll be free from the presence of sin overall when we meet Jesus face to face. But here's the thing, for today, this sermon won't make any sense without some context. And Jamal laid it down last week, but I'm going to do a little review, refresh our memory to say, hey, what's going on in this letter? Because it's not the most typical of passages. And the writer of Galatians is Paul. Paul, the missionary apostle. He was once a murderer who was persecuting the church. The early church, he was hunting people down, kicking in their doors, dragging them away from their children, putting them in prison, and murdering folks. But then Paul meets Jesus, meets a real, risen from the dead, in the flesh, Jesus, miraculously on the road to Damascus, and he is forever changed. He goes from murderer to missionary, from persecutor to preacher. That is what Paul's story is. But we got to dive in because he enters this interesting thing where he's on the defense writing this letter. See, Paul, once he came to Christ, then travels all around the Mediterranean, hitting all the cities, hitting the towns, telling people who had never heard about Jesus, about Jesus for the first time. And one of the places he went to was Galatia. It's in modern day Turkey. And he went there, he preached the gospel, he helped raise up leaders, and he founded these churches. And he's writing a letter back to them. But look at verses 6 and 7. This is what has happened. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Which is, no, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, Paul went out and he preached this gospel, this gospel he received from God, from Jesus himself, and people had come behind him, largely called the Judaizers. He'd come from Jerusalem behind him and said, Paul, his gospel, it's not the real one. They tried to discredit his gospel. They tried to discredit his gospel by misrepresenting Paul's story. Because the Judaizers said, yes, the gospel is about Jesus, plus following the Old Testament laws. The gospel is about obeying these Old Testament laws, or you need to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And particularly, he's talking to these Gentile males saying, hey, you need to be circumcised like a good Jewish man. You need to be now different. You need to do something else than believe in Jesus to get God. And that's contrary to the gospel of grace. That's contrary to the gospel of grace that says God saves us by his grace, his unmerited favor, through faith in Jesus alone and not by our works. And so Paul, we don't have the arguments the Judaizers levied against Paul. We don't have them. But we do have the other side of this email exchange. We do have the other side of this text message exchange in this letter. We don't have what they said, but we do have Paul's responses. 
And so in these verses, we're going to study and look at how did Paul defend himself and defend his gospel? Because they tried to discredit his gospel by misrepresenting his story. And if you've ever had your story misrepresented, you know how that feels. It's not good. It's a soul stealer when someone starts to misrepresent you. And so when we look in these passages, in this passage, let's keep that mindset. This is a man passionately defending, not out of his pride, but out of the sake of the gospel. So look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God. Some translations say violently persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul comes right out of the gate and says, hey, you're trying to say that I reasoned into this gospel. The other side is you're trying to say I made this gospel up or someone told me and I'm emphatically claiming I didn't get the gospel from anybody but Jesus. It's not of human origin. This story is too crazy to be made up. Born of a virgin, God becoming man, living a perfect life, then dying for sinners and rising again. He's saying that story is not made up. And more than that, verses 13 and 14, it didn't come from me. Paul had rejected what he knew about the gospel and in turn started killing those who followed Jesus. He didn't get it from anybody and he certainly didn't make it up. He's trying to set his story straight, and he goes on, and he says, this is what happened after I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says, my immediate response after meeting Jesus was not to consult with any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus, and then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. That's Peter. That's his other name. And stayed with him for 15 days, and I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So first Paul says, I didn't reason out this gospel. I didn't think it through and come around and then make it up. I also, I don't have a reduced gospel. Because it looks like the claim of the Judaizers was over and over saying, hey, Paul, he didn't, he didn't know Jesus during his earthly life. He didn't really know him. So anything Paul tells you about Jesus is borrowed knowledge. He had to get it secondhand. He has a handy-down gospel. He has a secondhand gospel. And what Paul is adamantly claiming, when Jesus rose from the dead and met me many years later on the road to Damascus, I didn't consult with anyone for three years. I didn't run to go clarify the story. I didn't go and check everything out right away. Instead, I went to Arabia. And we know from Acts 9, he didn't just go to Arabia, he started preaching the gospel. He went from persecutor to preacher. He was so sure of what God had told him, what Jesus had revealed to him, that he was ready to preach and he was already being persecuted. The hunter had become the hunted. Paul was so sure of his gospel, he didn't need to clarify it and he was ready to communicate it. So his gospel wasn't reasoned, it wasn't reduced, it wasn't a secondhand gospel. And the last charge he gives 
He says it, it is not a rebellious gospel either. Because he clarifies in Galatians 2. Take a look with me. After 14 years, he waited three years and he had a 15-day visit. He took a vacation in Jerusalem. And then 14 years later, he went up again. And he said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running in vain. That had not been running in vain. So he did go up and clarify. So his gospel wasn't reasoned. It wasn't a reduced gospel. And now about 20 years have elapsed between that encounter on the Damascus Road. And he actually did go to Jerusalem and lay it out and spend more time to verify that he had the gospel correct. And so his gospel isn't rebellious. And he does it by clarifying his story. Because the grace of God, seeing in our story, it's the real deal. His life had changed. He knew it was right. He knew it was right when he heard it, and he knew it was right as he lived it. And so, here's the question. If Paul's gospel is the right gospel, then what is Paul's gospel? Then what is this message of his gospel that's so scandalous that these Judaizers, these so-called Christians, had to track it down because they couldn't bear to hear it. They had to go find places like Galatia and come behind Paul. It's not a walk in the park. It's 580 miles if you use a boat. It's 100 more if you go over land. That's the distance between Louisville and D.C. And it was rough travel, dangerous travel. So these Judaizers were risking their lives to come behind some obscure guy named Paul. Because Paul, we think of as famous missionary. Paul's story, he has 20 years of obscurity in missions. No one even knew who he was. We'll get to that later. Now he's famous because he ended up writing 50,000 words of the New Testament, about 28% of what we believe in the New Testament. But back then he was a nobody, but he was enough that people were following him 600 miles to come discredit his gospel and misrepresent his story. So what is this scandalous gospel? Well, good thing, Paul tells us. We're going to look at the gospel from Paul's own story. I'm going to give you four categories to start to think about what the gospel of grace really means for you and I. And this, as the scriptures say, is a matter of first importance. That we would know this gospel, not just in our head, but let it sink those 18 inches to our heart. And then we believe it, that this is what God has done in Christ. Look with me at verse 15 and 16. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And the first part of this I want you to see is that God plans. God plans. Look at verse 15 again. It says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, notice what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say when Paul started having some doubts that maybe Jesus was God after
plans. When we make plans, they fail. Mind you, all the time. But when God makes a plan, it comes to fruition. God makes it happen. And how he makes it happen is God plans and then God calls. Look at verse 15 again with me. And call me by his grace. God makes a plan and then he calls us to him. And he has to call us to him. He has to call us to him because apart from God working in our lives, apart from God making plans, apart from these things, we would never believe in Jesus. We are made in God's image. We are special apart from the rest of creation. But we are fallen and sinful people. We're people under the curse of sin. What theologians have called incurvatus instead, meaning we've curved inward. The curse of sin has made something wrong with our soul. It's made us spiritually dead to where we'll never genuinely praise God. We'll never repent. We'll never follow Jesus apart from God's plan and call in our life. Look at Galatians 4.8 with me. Formerly, when you did not know God, as later in the book, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Our sins make us slaves. And we'll never be free of our sins, our idols, our gods, whatever you want to call them, until we trust in Christ. And good thing that's God's plan. And this isn't just Paul's one obscure kind of verses. Paul's just teaching what Jesus taught us in John 6, 44. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And when we hear a doctrine like this, when we hear a teaching like this, often our first thought is, that's not fair. I chose Jesus. That's not fair. I chose Jesus. That's not fair. It could possibly be true. Why? Because what about those God hasn't drawn? But there's two things there. It's a wrong idea of fairness, and it's the wrong question. Fairness and justice would be to leave all of us in our sins. God doesn't have to save anyone, but he delights to save us because he loves us. God owes us nothing. Justice and fairness, if we want that, then we're dead in our sins. There's wrath coming, and there's nothing we can do about it. But God in his great mercy and God in his great love Sheds his own blood to redeem sinners on no goodness or work of their own, but saves us according to his marvelous grace. That's what unmerited favor is. That's the heart of grace. Because God is good and I am not, he is saving me. And the second, that question is the wrong question. Because the question we should be asking is how do I respond to a God that planned, called, and actually can save me through no work or action or attitude or goodness in me? And then how can I tell everyone about this Jesus who can actually save? Not just make salvation possible, but set a plan, call me, and actually save me. A God who loves me enough to save me completely and leave nothing to chance. And that's where Paul goes with this. Because God saves. Look at verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's the heart of the gospel. Is that you see Jesus for who he is. That can be in or to in Greek. And they both are great. One you see Jesus. One Jesus starts something in you. And they're both true. Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. Paul didn't figure Jesus out. Paul didn't just flip his opinion like, man, the church is really nice people. Maybe I will stop killing them. Not what happened. 
He was on a donkey heading for more murder and destruction. Paul was an ancient terrorist. And then he met God. Paul, God saved Paul by revealing his son in him. And look what it says. It says he was pleased to do this. This is God's pleasure. This is what God does. He's not like, oh, I guess I have to save him. He's saying, yes, this was the plan all along. And it's my pleasure to give you this son that I love, even though he must die, even though he must die for you. He would do it a hundred billion more times. That is our God. He is pleased to save us. On the Damascus Road, we see Paul was planned. He's called. He was saved. He was knocked off the donkey and his new life started. And last week, Jamal dropped the gospel bomb that Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. Jesus plus religion. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus our family. Jesus plus anything else is a false gospel. And because of that, Jesus said, or Jamal said, he has Jesus in him now. Jamal said, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. The Judaizers say different. But Paul says, because Jesus says that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. We bring nothing to the table. Paul was actively hating Jesus in his church when he was saved. And this week, we see the flip side of Jesus plus nothing. Because if our gospel is Jesus plus nothing, therefore, God must be doing everything. If our gospel is Jesus plus nothing, then our God must be doing everything necessary from salvation for us. From beginning to end, he planned it in eternity past, and he has a future for you in eternity future. God from first to last is the Alpha and Omega, and he's leaving nothing to chance. And that's good news. That's good grace. Because that's the magic. That's the magic of grace. That's why it's scandalous. That's why these people are pulling their hair out. What do you mean it's not about me? What do you mean it's not about me at all? Not even a little. Not even anything I can do or say or be. It's about God. Because here's the truth. If you could earn your salvation by keeping a perfect record, we'd never make it. If we have a works-based religion, we're not going to get there. And that's what irreligious people, there's religious people who love works and doing the right works and they love religiosity. And then there's irreligious people who reject all that and say, I'm done with it. And most people say, man, they're so rebellious. No, they're being reasonable. Because if the gospel is works-based, they've said, I'm not going to make it. There's no point in trying. I'm out. And that's how you know these people aren't just rebellious. They're being reasonable. If the gospel's works-based, you don't have any hope. Stop acting like you're going to make it. And that's what an irreligious person is. If our salvation had to start with us, we'd have no interest. If you could lose your salvation, we would. God is calling, drawing our heart through real people and real places and your real story in real time. It's this ancient plan of love pulling you forward using actual places and people to reach more and to reach you. Your actions and decisions do matter. It's just God's plan is working through you. His call is working through you. And he wants to do that through you too. Look at Galatians 3.13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who's hung on a pole or cross. Jesus' plan to undo the curse in you so that you can turn to God, so that his grace can turn you to God, is his own blood. God does not take any of this lightly. And how can we trust him? Because he dies for it. Jesus' blood is the price of our grace. And he gives it freely to you. And this is God's work from beginning to end. See, Jesus doesn't save us because we're special. Jesus saves us because he's special. Jesus, Jesus doesn't save good people, nor does he save us for the good we might one day do. Jesus saves Paul, and Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners. And this means that God can and frequently does save the least likely people, the ill-deserving people. And this should not ever discourage our evangelism, but encourage our evangelism that God has a plan. And if someone has breath in their lungs, then there's a hope for them in the gospel that they will turn and believe. Paul does not sit on his hands because God is big and sovereign and strong. He says, it's time to go because I know God has a plan to rescue sinners for his own joy and pleasure. You can go with confidence to your family, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your neighbors and say, I know Jesus and I want you to know him. Turn and believe, my brother. Reason in the scriptures because God wants to use you. You're the plan. God is not appearing in bodily form to save anyone. He don't world that all would know his fame. 
And that's how God gets glory. When grace is our story, it's not about our smarts, our emotions, our family history. It's not about gifted preachers or books or worship leaders or churches. God uses these things, but ultimately it's God saves you by grace. Our salvation doesn't start with us, God plans. Our wonderings, our attention, our curiosity are real, but that's God calling you. Our salvation doesn't boil down to our flippant decisions or even our best triharderisms. Instead, God saves. And last, just as our salvation doesn't start with us, it doesn't end with us because God saves us to send us. The gospel comes to you in order to go through you, and that's God's plan. Uh, well, here's the thing. Because of grace, let's look at verse 20 through 24. Because I want to look at how God's changed Paul's life and what he did with it. And this text is just kind of history. But I think it's super interesting. Because here's my, my thesis. That your gospel conversion will lead you to godly convictions. Your gospel conversion will lead you to godly convictions. Meaning that when our story becomes about God's glory, that can't be an abstract. We have to believe act on and live for certain things. And I think of Paul's life from this passage and the rest of the New Testament, you can see there are certain godly convictions he receives. So let's read the scriptures. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Well, thanks, Paul. Good. Good. Not lying in the Bible. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia, and that's his hometown. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised or gave glory to God because of me. Hey, Christian, if you read verse 24, don't you want that to be your story? I know I want it to be mine. I want people to give glory to God because of what God's done in my life. I want people to give glory to God because of how I work and how I live. Not because I'm good, but because God is great. I want people to look back on my life and in the presence, praise God for what God has done to the sinner and where he's going. And it's about Jesus. And I think you want that too, right? You want to give glory with your life. You want that to be the purpose of your life. And I think I see it's not enough just an abstract to worship Jesus or abstract to be about his glory, but to develop some convictions that you think about your experience of God, you think about your conversion, and you look at the scriptures, and then God starts to resonate certain things. There's hundreds of things you can emphasize in your Christian life, but I think God calls you to specific convictions that you know that you would even die for, that these are the things you give it up all for, that these are the things that will God guide your life. And here's a couple for Paul. I think one you see in his writings over and over is this gospel of grace, and here's an aspect we haven't talked about. The grace of God means your past is gone. The grace of God means your past is gone. Paul was a murderer. He doesn't really talk about it. He's more concerned that he was self-righteous and thought he could save himself. I don't think it's because he's ignoring the atrocities under him. I just think he, he knows he's forgiven. And he knows he has a future. When I first started as a pastor, I started in a campus ministry and I worked with young men on a college campus. And we did a discipleship curriculum kind of every other week, meet, talk, homework, meet, talk, homework. And it was great. And about midway through, we talked about confession. And after the, the lesson in the scriptures, I gave them the homework. I said, hey, um, go home, pray about this week, think about, write down the top five sins of your life. 
the worst five things you thought, did, or said. And come back, and we'll talk next week. And, of course, they left deeply nervous. <laughs> All the other meetings were fun. Uh, and they came back, and they were nervous, and I picked the places, like, outside of the coffee shop or on back patio of someone's house, a little more private. And they kind of were a little bit shaking, coming up with the paper. And I pushed aside their fear and said, hey, I'm not going to read it. The list isn't for me to read. I'm not your priest. But if you found forgiveness for these, if you trusted Christ for grace, then could you fold it in half? And they kind of would, and you can see they're kind of looking and like, what is going on? And I just strike a match and run it on the table there. Because that's what happens when you have the grace of God. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west, so the scripture says. They still happen in real history, but the guilt, the shame, and the fear are no longer your masters. Two more convictions I just see from this passage. And one is mission matters. Paul suffered so much. So much that people started to doubt he was an apostle and doubt even that he was a Christian because if God loves you, how could all this stuff happen to you? That it got so bad and so intense that he spent so much of his life in prison or beaten up, eventually crucified, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, having people go 600 miles just to say he's a liar. It was not a great life. But you see in Paul's writings, he doesn't ask people to pray for his circumstances. He asked him to pray for his character to persevere. Because it seems Paul has settled on the conviction that mission matters. And suffering is just part of doing God's work in a fallen world. Another conviction you see, I love verse 22. It says, Then I went to Syria and Sicilia, and I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. We think of Paul as famous. Paul largely lived in the majority of his ministry in deep obscurity to all the churches. They only eventually heard a rumor that the guy who used to drag us out of our house had come to Christ. And the thing is, you can embrace obscurity too. I can too, because when God knows your name, then living for our own fame is pretty shallow. And so you see this moment where he has these godly convictions that drive so much of what Paul does. And so I will say this just to jog your thoughts. Maybe those are your convictions. But look at the scriptures. Think about your conversion story. How did God meet you? Think about the big moments in your life. Those big combos with your spouse or friends. Those moments that define how you traject your life. And start to ask God, what are the lessons? What are these pillars that I can take? Anyone know how a skyscraper's made? We see them go up, but the way they make them is they drill way down. And they take these deep concrete and steel pillars that go so deep down to give them stability to go up and withstand the wind and the rain and the hurricanes. And they can go higher. The higher they go, the deeper the pillars had to go first. And that's what God wants for your life, to change your story to be about His glory. What are your convictions? Maybe you share some with Paul. Maybe you look at the scriptures and find some others. Every story here is unique. And God wants to use it for His glory. That's how you make a life that's about Christ in the particulars, not just the abstract. Because here's the thing, there's a question that really uh, it, it makes a lot of anxiety in this age. We're always worrying if we're doing the right thing or saying the right thing or doing the right job or in the right city. But what if we change that question? Am I heading in the right direction? Am I following Christ? Am I heading in the direction God's laid for? I think when you have those convictions, it does some things. It narrows your focus in life. It clarifies your priorities. 
It sets up a godly direction. And you can make godly decisions because you're confident with the God who plans. You can have godly faith because you're confident in the God who's still calling you. He hasn't quit. You can be confident to know godly purpose because you know the God who saves. And you can have godly meaning in his mission because you know God is sending you everywhere. So church, when the grace of God is our gospel, then our story can be about his glory. Let us embrace this God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. Gave thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's our tradition here at Sojourn that we break off a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine. The wine is marked by twine. Juice does not have twine. And we take it each week to remember what Christ has did and to remember that Christ is coming back. We'll have communion stations in the front for the front half of the room and in the back for the back half of the room. Gluten-free communion is to my left and your right. And this meal is only for Christians who've trusted in the glorious grace of God. They have put all their hope and all their faith, not in themselves, but on the goodness and grace of God through Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian today, I'm so glad you're here. And I would love for you to consider this gospel of grace to you. Let us pray.